Please pray with me. Lord, take our lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and live in them. And may we be filled with the Holy Spirit, both in these moments ahead and for the rest of this hour. Amen. See if we can get this mic right. How does it sound? Sounds all right? Okay, good. New mic, so. (laughs) I tell you, it is a remarkable thing. Curious, even. We live in a society that is the most technologically advanced society in history. We've figured it all out. We live in a society with better medical advances, more material resources than any society in history. And not only that, we have an endless amount of research that is there to help you live your best life now, as Joel Osteen would say. To help you find happiness, fulfillment, success. Just go to your local bookstore and wander down the self-help section. There are rows and rows of books that can help you out. Out of curiosity, I did uh, decide to look up on Amazon on my phone. Like, just, uh, you just type in self-help, and it's amazing some of the books that come up. Um, the Motivation Switch, 77 Ways to Get Motivated, Avoid Procrastination, and Achieve Success. Uh, here's another good one, although the language is a little colorful. You are a bad something. I won't fill in the language. You are a bad something. Uh, how to stop doubting yourself and start living your awesome life. Uh, get out of your own way. Overcome self-defeating behavior. The untethered soul, the journey beyond yourself. The list goes on and on and on. If you want to find happiness, it's right there. If you want to find success at work, it's right there. You want to find success in your marriage, it's right there. You want to find success in your interpersonal relationships, it's right there. So we're all happy, right? In addition, we have a whole uh, profession of counselors, people who have been trained uh, in the ins and outs of the human psyche who can help us through difficult times uh, in ways that are far beyond uh, what people could have done 200 years ago. We also have wonderful drugs uh, that can help us uh, overcome things like clinical depression, uh, which can be so overwhelming, anxiety, and more serious conditions, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia. Uh, these things are wonderful. So everything's great. I mean, what's the secret to happiness? We all know the answer. Move to Houston. (laughs) But this is the thing that I find so curious. These books have good pieces of advice in them. I I, I, I don't want to detract from them. We know what we can do theoretically to make ourselves happy, right? If I were to ask you to make a list of here are the five things you should do to make yourself happy, you'd give me those five things. So you should be happy all the time, right? There's this curious thing about human nature, this curious thing about being human, that too often we don't do that which we know we should do. We do have difficulties in our relationships. 
We do have difficulties with our spouses. This happens. This is a real thing. You can go read books on it. That still doesn't take away the reality that we have difficulties with our spouses. We have difficulties with our kids. You can read all these books on parenting. I know there are all these magazines. I remember going to visit my sister-in-law's and my brother's house, and literally there's a stack of magazines uh, on parenting right there. And yet, sometimes your kids do stuff that make you just want to pull your hair out. You just want to live their lives for them so so they stop doing what they're doing. But you can't. Or you think about your interpersonal relationships. Sometimes those get fractured. You do make mistakes. They make mistakes for you, even though you know you shouldn't. You go out, you spend money on things you know you shouldn't spend money on. But you do it anyway. Why? Especially when it can cause problems, and and oftentimes it does. I mean, people do struggle with things. We struggle with anxiety. Anxiety that can be so overwhelming that it paralyzes you. Even though you know you shouldn't, even though it's stuff that's in your head, that anxiety can be overwhelming. You become locked in a cloud of depression. And when you're there, you know you're not thinking rationally. But you still can't stop it, it's still there. And sometimes that cloud becomes so overwhelming you just can't move. The forces of addiction can be very powerful. You know you shouldn't do X or Y, but you do it anyway, and it causes pain to you and others. And then there's dealing with loss. Loss as your body gets older and begins to not work the same way it used to. That can be very hard to deal with. Loss as you begin to lose your memories and other things and you can see it going on and you know it's going on and you can only do so much to stop it. Loss when you lose people who are close to you. You can read 50 books on grieving, but that doesn't make the grieving any easier. And no matter what you do, a month later, sometimes years later, it keeps coming back. These are all things of what it means to be human, to live in our existence, our existence today. That's why I've always liked reading existentialist writers, because they struggle with what the issue is of actually existing, and they put the problem there to consider for yourself. A classic existentialist viewpoint is that we we are divided selves that we do live divided lives and it causes so many issues. We often do things that we don't want to do or we know we shouldn't do, but we do them anyway. But it's also very compelling. I I remember about uh, 15 years ago, I decided to uh, dust off my old copy of like F. Scott Fitzgerald and I reread Great Gatsby. And I remember being struck by just like, gosh, there wasn't, there's not a punctuation mark out of place in The Great Gatsby. It's one of the most polished novels I've ever read. It's fantastic. Then I read his next novel, Fitzgerald's next novel, Tender is the Night. Tender is the Night took Fitzgerald like six years to write. 
Uh, he wrote it when he was struggling with alcoholism, when his wife was struggling with mental illness and their relationship was falling apart. And even though the novel is not nearly as polished, there is real pain on some of those pages because Fitzgerald was going through it at the time and you can see it when you're reading the book. And I found Tender as the Night much more compelling than The Great Gatsby. The theologian, the 20th century theologian, Paul Tillich, who you know I like a lot, one of the reasons I like Paul Tillich is because he takes this exact situation and he describes it in theological terms. He says that our essential self, that is, our self that God created us to be and wants us to be, our essential self, the part of us that was there before the fall, our essential self is divided from our actual existence. There's that separation there that causes problems, existential angst, and all sorts of things lead to that kind of separation. And that the goal is to try and find wholeness, to bring together those two parts of us. Tillich says that Jesus was someone who, was successfully, who successfully brought these things together. That's how he defines Jesus. And that what all of us need, regardless of how many books we read, or other things that we might do, all of us need to be rooted in God to help us become whole, to overcome that existential estrangement, to overcome our divided selves. That, for Tillich, is salvation. Think about a time when you were in distress when you were in real existential distress. It could be any number of things. It could have been something that happened this past week. It could have been something that happened 20 years ago. Think about a moment when you were in distress. And now think about what helped you get through that distress. How did you make it through? If I were to guess, I would bet that an individual or several individuals were there with you during those times to help you get through those times. That someone, whether they be loved ones or friends or even just random strangers or maybe church members, were there to help you get through whatever difficulty you were facing. That is the essence of what we talk about when we're talking about spiritual care. It is walking with someone. It's trying to seek understanding of what someone else is going through. It's being there to pray with someone, to help someone find God when God can be so hard to discover. I remember when my uh, college roommate, Matt Milkowski, his younger brother, John, died of cancer at age 23. And after that, I was living in New Haven at the time where they, where they lived. And so I went over to, uh, to their house, and there's a Jewish custom sitting shiva uh, after someone dies. And I, I came to realize why this custom was so important. In the Jewish tradition, after someone dies, uh, you, in mourning, you are forced to open your home and sit with your friends for seven days. 
You're forced to. You don't have an option. So you can imagine, you're in the midst, I mean, you can imagine what Matt's parents were going through. The last thing you want to do is be around people. But the religious tradition doesn't allow that. It says, nah, you, you must. People are going to come over and you're going to have to play host to them. You don't need to smile, but you got to be there while they're there. And it's amazing to see how important just that presence is. I bet if you asked Matt's parents, Dan and Sharon, what people said during that week, they couldn't name one thing. But they could probably tell you who was there. Now, one of the things that's a theme for this fall here at FCC, it's a theme of our stewardship campaign, and it's also sort of a broader theme of our fall, is imagine more. That fun thought game about what can we be as a congregation? What can we be about? I, I spoke about it last week in my sermon when we were talking about vision, about setting a vision for the congregation, and I proposed that vision should be spiritual transformation. But that vision was then, uh, and having a vision statement was then encapsulated in our new constitution we passed last week. But part of this imagining more is imagining concrete things we can do to be a better congregation, to be more. And this morning, we are about to commission several of you to be spiritual caregivers for the congregation. Now, one thing that's great about a congregation like this, especially a congregation that's this size, is that this congregation, I know, already cares very well for one another. People in this congregation naturally do reach out to others. That's one thing I love about this congregation. But especially as we focus on things like outreach to our community, about continually uh, updating our facilities, about trying to reach out to new people and bring them in and make them a part of our fellowship, as we're focusing on these things, the last thing we want is for people to slip through the cracks, is to have situations where people might need some sort of spiritual care from the congregation and for some reason they might not be getting it. And so to prevent that from happening, we don't want to lose sight of the importance of spiritual care, so we are commissioning people this morning to be spiritual caregivers on behalf of the congregation. And one thing I love about FCC is that we are blessed with so many talented people here in this congregation. Uh, and one of whom is Deborah, again, who is reading the scripture. Uh, I mean, and, it's, and De Deborah is, is thankfully volunteering her gifts and talents to help out our whole congregation. Whether or not you know it, Deborah. Uh, does uh, pastoral care uh, for a living at St. Luke's Hospital down in the medical center. Not only does she do it, she also teaches it to people. So she's a professor of spiritual care in a hospital setting. And she's bringing her expertise voluntarily to help out all of us who will be spiritual caregivers for this congregation. And I have to say, I am very happy that when I look through scripture, I realize that the Christian church has been doing this from the very beginning. I read that passage that Deborah read this morning in Acts, and I'm like, yes! They empowered a spiritual care team way back in the early church. I also love how, I don't know if you noticed this, like Luke has this tendency to gloss over bad things in the church. And I, I love how he describes like people being angry that they were being neglected by the apostles. And I mean, Luke describes it as being like a really like, yay, peaceful meeting. But I bet that congregational meeting was not a peaceful congregational meeting. And I'm also, my, my heart is somewhat warmed that even the 12 apostles were messing up. And even the 12 apostles, people were like, uh-uh. I guess every preacher can read that through and go like, okay, good. If it happens to the apostles, it's okay. 
But the, the main thing I want you to take away from this sermon, more so, even more so than the blessing that we're about to give for our spiritual caregivers, is to keep in mind the importance of spiritual care. Because it's something that each and every one of you can and should be doing, not only with members of the congregation here, but with other people. To be a presence, to walk with them, to seek to understand what they're going through, to be there to listen, to be there to offer prayers in whatever way you or that person feel most comfortable, to try and find the presence of God uh, with someone else when they need that sense of wholeness, when they're facing that sense of existential angst and separation. It is important. If you've been there before, or if you've had the ability to offer that care as a gift, you know what I'm talking about. And I hope you hear that deep in your soul.